The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you and as always for the next 30 minutes, a frank open honest conversation about gambling addiction. Joining me as always, Dan Trelaro from Epic Risk Management. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm well, Craig. Good morning. How are you today? Doing great. Appreciate it. And happy to have on the show today the Executive Director from the National Council for uh, Problem Gambling, Mr. Keith White, who's been a guest with us before a year ago. Keith, good morning and welcome back. Hey, good morning, Craig and Dan. Honored to be back with you all. Yeah, so I guess just generally speaking, now that there's been so much more legalized wagering uh, coast-to-coast, uh, give us an idea or an update on where we are in regards to programs and you know good things coming down the pipe to help problem gamblers or future problem gamblers. Well, it's a great question, Craig. So the, we know the industry is making a ton of money. We know state governments are making a ton of money. We know consumers are losing a lot of money, especially people with gambling problems. And we know that the problem gambling programs themselves are not getting the kind of money that they need. So we're getting ready to uh, release a survey at our conference next week that shows in the past four years that the amount of public funding, you know, state, state government money that's gone to prevent and treat gambling problems has risen from mid-70 million a year to about 95 million a year. But that is still $1.4 billion below what the National Council recommends. So our goal for 2022 was $1.5 billion, and, the, and that's the minimum level of funding. And states are only putting in $94 million. All right, so so let, me use, let me use New York as a, as a case study here. I read the other day that thus far, since New York got on board with legalized wagering, the state of New York has brought in you know, north of $300 million in tax <laughs> money alone. And I'm trying to figure out where that money goes and how it's being used. And since it's being raised specifically by uh, gambling and by gamblers in the state of New York, you know, yep. shouldn't the majority, if not all of that tax revenue, be used to educate, to treat, to uh, make aware, to market, you know, the potential problem uh, that gambling does bring to the table? Like, where's, where does that $300 million go? Uh, we can, I, can, I can assure you that we're the last people that get it. You know, it's, it's paradoxical. It's, it's, it's so frustrating. It's so stupid. It's both economically blindsided and ethically bankrupt that the problem gambling stuff gets funded least and last. So in New York State, of that $300 million, by the at the end of the year, New York will cough up $15 million max right now for problem gambling programs. Our New York chapter has asked for twenty five million they can't even get it's unbelievable craig and the, like you said in the first couple months new york states made 300 million well let me stop they you there even, why do you say yeah. 15 million max because that's all that the state has has allocated so if so if the state brings in and it's, it's on pace to do it to bring in over half a billion dollars in tax revenue there's still only 15 million dollars going towards the cause yeah and this is and this is new revenue. It's not coming out of the state's pocket at all. Right. And they are so chintzy. They're so short sighted wow. that they can't adequately fund. So what do they do with the other? Let, let's use five hundred million as the number because people can understand right. that's an easy number. 
So there's $485 million left once you subtract the $15 million bucks that, and this is the entire state. This is not just you know New York City. This is the entire state of New York. So there's 485 left. Where does that money go? That's that's your state government at work. It's going to go towards I don't know what, but it won't go to problem gambling prevention and education treatment. Dan and I have been fighting this battle for year over year, state after state. Problem gambling prevention treatment gets funded least and last, partly it's because of that shame and stigma. You know, the politicians and the public don't have a lot of sympathy for people that get jammed up with gambling problems, and so it's really hard to say, look, if you're raising, if you're making windfall profits. Just put one percent back, but we'll 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 keep fighting. But it's very it's very disappointing. So Dan, let me ask you because you spent a good amount of your uh, post gambling life working for the New Jersey Council prior yeah. to going to Epic. When when you would have conversations with the state of New Jersey, not New York, is there ever an explanation or an answer to the question of if all this money comes very specifically from gambling? Why aren't we putting more of that money back towards messaging for responsible gambling, centers to help problem gamblers, et cetera, et cetera? It it almost seems like there's been a a bit of a comparison that's gone on. You know, I remember in New Jersey in 2013, Internet and mobile device gambling was legalized and approved. And all of a sudden, the state almost essentially doubled the budget of the New Jersey Council. And, and it's okay, that's good, but when you look at the number of people who started gambling online and the amount of revenue that started coming in, they almost made it seem like, well, you're doing better than you were before. Right. So be happy with that. But it's not keeping pace <laughs> with the amount of exposure, uh, experimenting, and the number of people experiencing problems. And, and that's to keep point. It's not even keeping pace shame with inflation. It's, it's not even keeping pace with inflation. <laughs> And it's, they, they almost go off this, well, we're, we're, we're helping you out. Well, what more do you want from us? Well, we want more funding. Yeah. We want a national bucket. We want treatment and research at a, at a federal level, much the same way that SAMHSA addresses substance use disorder and substance abuse. Gambling has to be a part of that. Yeah, it's, cr- it's yep. crazy to me. And I can, I can get on my soapbox about it. I try not to because, you know, I've, I've always said, and I say this with all due respect to, you know, Keith, what your group does, Dan, what Epic does, and even what – you know, we do here and what I admittedly do with FanDuel, you know, as their, as their responsible gambling ambassador, I don't think a lot of it works. And I think oh, yeah. what does work, this show works, you know, people like me being out there talking about how gambling yep. ruined their lives, how, you know, you're sharing their stories, all the people that Dan and I bring on this show in an attempt to humanize the addiction, I believe that works. You know, telling someone in a 30-second radio ad, hey, if you think you have a problem, call this number or that number. I don't believe that that really works as much as hearing other people who have similar stories to what you're going through, a loved one's going through. I think that cuts through. And I also (laughs) think that, and this is just me, Keith, saying, you know, one of the issues is that let's say you talk to a compulsive gambler who finally gets that place in his or her life where they recognize they have a problem, they're going to be honest about it, and they want help, where do they get it? And while we have all these great state-level councils who do God's work, and I, I'm you know, amazed by a lot of work that these, uh, these people do for very little money, the reality is that none of them, none of us, do a great job in telling that compulsive gambler or their family, more importantly, here's where you can go physically, tangibly. 
here's where the therapy center is. Here's where the specific, you know, counselors or doctors or psychiatrists, et cetera, are. I don't even know if those places exist, and I'm living it. And that's yeah. what bothers me. No, you're exactly right. The whole system is underfunded, neglected, and a patchwork. And so, yeah, you know, in, in some states, you know, the reason that people don't have those answers is because they're not there. You know, there, there, are, there are states that don't have a certified gambling counselor. There are states that don't have a helpline. There are states that don't have any public funding for problem gambling programs. So District of Columbia, right, has the first in-stadium sports books in the nation. They have not spent one penny in the last four years since they legalized online sports betting, not one penny, Craig and Dan, to prevent, treat, educate, or research gambling problems. How, That's unreal. I mean, so I'm, how can you do that? Right. And, and like, how is that frankly, acceptable? Right. Let's, let's, let's be honest. Some of the nation's biggest operators, including some of the names you just mentioned, are operating sports books in that jurisdiction. Is that responsible gambling? Can you operate responsibly in a jurisdiction where you know 100% that there are no services available to help any of your customers have a gambling problem. Yeah, well, I would counter you on that one topic because I don't think as, as much as a lot of the operators do, you know, donate money and resources to programs to try to make people aware of the concept of gambling responsibly. And I think a lot of them do a really good job coming yes. from their place, uh, you know, as operators to do that. My issue is not with them at all. Other than, like, I don't think you should advertise on college campuses. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, my, you know, my, my belief is that it's not their responsibility. It's the state's responsibility that's getting this windfall of tax revenue that they never had before. And listen, we're not asking for 100% of it, but we're asking them to use it in a wise, effective manner and not to give us even the 1% you asked for nationally – to me, that's a ridiculously low number. Yeah. And I'd want to know that they're dedicating a much larger percentage of it, and they're doing it with tangible results, which I don't think any states are doing. Oh, no. Well, and it goes back to your question that Dan and I have wrestled with. Why aren't states funding this when the money's so readily available? Frankly, it's not because they don't understand. It's because they don't want to understand. This is a windfall. This is the last way of raising money without raising taxes. And state legislators that take those votes deliberately do not want to see the impacts of the problem. They don't want to see the costs. They only want to count, count the benefits. And it's, it's a point now where after 50 years, this is our 50th anniversary, Craig, and you're right, we have not been nearly as effective as, as we need and want to be. After 50 years of this, you can't tell me that when a state legislature authorizes online sports betting, they don't know there's going to be problems. Yeah, but they if they to. refuse to study, and they refuse to research and count the number of their citizens who get jammed up, that's on them. We'll take a quick break talking to Keith White, Executive Director of NCPG, the National Council on Problem Gambling, and, of course, Dan Trelaro, Epicris Management. This is Hello, My Name is Craig. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Keith White with us and, of course, Dan Trelaro. Keith, we spent the first part of the show talking about what the states are not doing that we'd all like to see them do. I want to talk a little bit about the leagues. Um, kind of, there's a, there's, it's a two-pronged question or conversation I want to have with you guys. And that is, one, it's interesting to me that the leagues allow their players to actually go to the you know, gambling operators 
and do uh, you know marketing deals with them, which uh, fascinates me. And then on the flip side of that, I know you know the NFL, you know, famously now wrote a decent sized check for you know, your group, the NCPG. <laughs> you know, the other leagues are now you know kind of following suit and at least paying some level of attention to it. But overall, where are we in reality with the seriousness the leagues treat? the potential for problem gambling now that, you know, you can go to virtually every state in the country and wager on their action. I think the leagues are a lot like the operators who are a lot like the states. There's a couple leaders. You know, there's the names like NFL that, that we would say absolutely are trying to get it right. Um, there's a bunch of people in the middle, you know, leagues that are, that are doing a little bit. You know, they post our helpline number in their locker rooms. They're engaging with us or with other groups like Epic. And then there's a bunch of followers. They're, you know, at the state level, at the operator level, at the league level, they don't want to hear about any problems. If they do, they want to minimize, deny, delay, explain it away, you know, and they're just, they're just counting the, they're counting the, the checks. So where, where we are today is, um, to, to use a couple of sports analogies, we're in the first inning. You know, the, the leagues are embracing legalized sports betting. They're, they're, they're looking at the impact on their players. They're looking at the impact on personnel, you know, coaches, trainers, and then they're looking at impact on the public. And they are starting to try and find that balance between cost and benefit. And I can tell you there's a lot more work even the NFL needs to do, but most of the other leagues are far behind them, and there are significant risks to their players, to their, their personnel, and then to the public with their embrace of the, all the benefits of legalized sports betting and their reluctance or unwillingness to really acknowledge and have a serious discussion about the cost. So, Dan, let me bring you in on that because you've spent the better part of the last year traveling to uh, college campuses talking specifically to NCAA athletes about the dangers and perils of gambling. What's your take kind of universally now on what you hear from uh, these young uh, athletes? You know, it's interesting, you know, as part of the NCAA program to um, kind of promote sports betting integrity and to reduce harm, we have to remember that, a majority of the student athletes on campus, two thirds to three quarters are underage. First of all, they're under the age of 21. So if they're gambling on sports, which they're not allowed to do under the NCAA provisions, it oftentimes is illegal. But then if we go to the next layer, besides just the gambling related harm, the, the uh, qualitative data and the feedback we get, you know, EJ Liddell at Ohio state, you know, Oral Roberts upsets them two years ago in the first round of the tournament. And what happens? He gets death threats on campus because they lost to a 15 seed. Take that, the social media threat to the student-athlete, that is a growing concern amongst coaches, compliance, athletic directors on college campuses, but also the coaches. We were at a school in the Midwest delivering a session back in the fall, uh, in the spring, and one of the football coaches came up after and said he got punched in the face after not kicking a field goal and letting the clock run out to win the game, because that's your goal is to win the game. Right. Somebody punched him in the face after and said, you just cost me $1,000. Right. They didn't cover and the so spread. Got it. They didn't cover the spread because you know, your first goal is to win the game, not cover the point spread. And so well, we're, we're just anecdotal evidence of various threats that kind of pop up and emerge as a result of you know, legalized gambling popping up on the college campuses. And, and the NCAA's own surveys show that of even Division I student-athletes who bet sports now and break the NCAA's own bylaws, the majority of those who are already who are sports betting in college as a Division One athlete, they started betting before they came to college. So really, and it's you know excellent work that Epic is doing with colleges. We're still too late. If we're not talking to high school 
athletes, and frankly, probably middle school athletes, we know that people with gambling problems report their first bet, and I know both you and Dan have really early histories of this, as have most of the guests on your show. People with gambling problems report their first bet between 10 and 12 years old. If we're not talking to them then, that's where that $1.4 billion in missing money is going to help fill the gap. And even as you said, Craig, that's nowhere near enough to give a prevention message to every middle school kid. But if that's not our goal, and that is the goal of the National Council, but if that's not the goal nationwide, all this stuff later, you know, to first, to first talk to kids when they get to the pros about gambling integrity, no, we need to be talking to them in middle school. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting you bring it up, Keo. This fall, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a college tour. Uh, you're talking about the perils uh, for some of, uh, like myself, yeah. of you know, of compulsive gambling, and I've been approached by a lot of high schools, you know, guidance counselors, principals, athletic directors, etc., to come have you know, give those talks to high school seniors. And one of the things that high school educators are grappling with right now is what is the appropriate age to have that conversation? You know, and it's interesting. A lot of them feel like, hey, let's talk to the seniors. But the reality is that, as you said, Keith, you know, there are kids, juniors, sophomores, freshmen, because, you know, it's so widespread now and it's so easily accessible. You know, just get your dad's account or have a, an uncle yeah. sign you up, whatever the case may be, that they, they're they starting to feel like waiting for a kid to become a senior in high school may not be early enough. And, you know, I'll lean on their expertise on that. But it's interesting that it's almost like we're saying – the messaging that the three of us collectively, our groups that we work with, are trying to put forward uh, may be falling on deaf ears if we're only preaching to, you know, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, and the real yeah. messaging may need to start with teenagers. Well, let me just it, it, jump in there, That's too, how we used to think about alcohol, talk, too. We, you know, it, we didn't want to talk to kids about drugs or sex until they're adults. But yep. they're already doing it. And so you've yep. got to start young. You know, this, this, is a, this is a public health issue. This is like drug abuse. And just because a kid's young, but that, that's when you start a prevention message. And so anyway, I mean, I think we've learned a lot uh, from how to message around behavioral health. But yeah, administrators, that's the problem right there. If they say, oh, you shouldn't talk to a kid until he's 18 about gambling, you have missed 95% of their gambling career to date. And yep. you're not going to be Got it. From a prevention standpoint, too, we, we talk about primary prevention happening at an early age because of imagery and gambling mechanics that are even embedded within video games. You know, we're, kids are learning about gambling in so many different ways. But I think Virginia, Keith, and if you could just kind of elaborate, if, you, if you're familiar with this, I think Virginia's taking a step in the right direction because they're one of the first states that started looking to put gambling curriculum in their K through 12, correct? Yes. Yeah. When Virginia uh, expanded sports books, uh, there was an enlightened legislator, Senator Simon, who uh, pushed through a bill in, in the face, I will say, of significant opposition to require that K through 12 has um, the, the world, the, sorry, the United States first mandatory gambling education curriculum. We're working with the Virginia chapter and the state of Virginia to put that together. But it's a step, you know, but it's, right. it's to your point, Craig, this has to be a broad conversation. You've got to hit them at all angles, at all ang- ages, I mean, with all different messages. Your message is important. Our message is important. Yeah. There's a lot of other messages out there. You know, it, it needs to be a multi-layered approach. That's what we learned with substance abuse, and that's what's going to be the same with gambling. What's the big fight against it? I think, again, there were people who quite cynically in, in the state of Virginia thought that if you do gambling education prevention to kids, two things would happen. One, the state will lose money. And how cynical is that? How disgusting is that approach? And then the second 
is to, to your point about this, the administrators, I think there were people in the Virginia legislature who thought if we start talking to kids about gambling now at a young age, that's somehow going to encourage them to keep gambling. Right. These so are probably the same type them- of people who don't. Support yep. sex education either. But yeah, yeah, I got you. It's, it's, you know, that's an age-old argument. Yeah, what age is the right age to expose kids, even from an educational standpoint, to things some of them truly don't know anything about? And does that yep. make them more interested in it and then more likely to uh, experiment with it? Which, yeah, I'm sure there's educators out there that are on both sides of that fence. I'm not skilled enough or yeah. educated enough to tell you what the right <laughs> answer to that is. Like, what is the right age? I just think that... You know, I think the messaging for me, and I've said this a lot of times on this show, as much as we want to reach problem gamblers, I think the marketing needs to start moving in a direction of reaching out to their friends and family, people who don't gamble irresponsibly, people who don't have a yeah. problem, but people who are absolutely going to be the first people affected by the behavior of the compulsive gambler because, as I've said a lot of times on this show, I have great respect for the men and women that volunteer to answer the phone at 1-800-GAMBLER. I do. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're trying to make the world a better place. They're trying to be a resource for people like me. But the reality is I never would have called that number. <laughs> but I do believe firmly now, you know, with you know, a lot of life behind me and having, you know, tough conversations with loved ones that they would have called the number or a number mm-hmm. or somebody that is uh, an expert in helping people have the problem that I have. So I think we always have to be cognizant of it's not just the addict that we need to get our messaging to. It's their family and loved ones also because they may be the very yep. first line of defense to help people out. Yep, 100%. And there's a lot more of them. You know, sure. I mean, there's a lot more uh, people yep. who there's that teachable moment. You know, it's help them understand what's normative. You know, if, if your friends and family had a better idea that, wow, Craig, you know, Craig's behavior, Dan's behavior, that that's out of the norm. Maybe they would have looked a little bit deeper, had a had a conversation, been equipped themselves to to have that that conversation. But people don't know what normative gambling behavior looks like, so it's really hard for them. They may think it's normal. Yeah, and to be fair, we are we become yeah. world class liars. And and there's a lot of people that, you know, in my life, I'm sure Dan would tell the same story, that they'll tell me now, hey, if I had known, I would have done something. I would have stood in the way of it, but I didn't know. And there are people who came to me, I'm sure came to Dan as well, and said, hey, you all right? Hey, you doing okay? Hey, is the gambling under control? And you look them dead in the eye and say, I'm good. You know, so, you know, even the people that saw certain signs, we become so adept at lying to them that, you know, we kind of get them off the case a little bit, if you know what I mean. Sure, but in, and I think that Dan's point, Dan is a preventionist. It's, it's, it's having that conversation, not when you're 25 and 35, it's having that conversation at 15. That's where, and I think, so you're, you're all right. I mean, when you're talking to these high school seniors, that'll probably be the first time anybody's ever talked to them about gambling. It'll be the first time someone has talked to them about, here's some warning signs. If your friends are hiding their app all the time, if your friends can't stop talking about it, they can't put down the phone, Maybe that's something you think you should think about. And then maybe when they're 25, they'll, you know, they'll yeah. take action. Final thing for you, just because time is short. And, you know, I went to Algamas out in Prescott, Arizona, and it's, uh, it's part of my story and certainly uh, got me on the right track. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And I wish there were places like that in every state. And I'm just wondering, in your opinion, because I don't know that there's any stats or facts, you know, to, to base what you're going to say to me. But in your opinion, is it fair for me to expect that in the next, let's say, 
two to four years, something along those lines, that we can have a place like that readily accessible uh, in New York, in New Jersey, in Connecticut, and in all the states that offer gambling, or is that too much of a pipe dream even now? It's not too much of a pipe dream, but it's going to take it's going to take moving insurance companies. You know, it's going to take public support and acceptance of gambling addiction as a serious disorder that is both preventable and treatable. So we're going to have to change systems of reimbursement. We're going to have to change systems of care. We're going to have to change public opinion. But yes, there's the fact that there's only nine problem gambling specific residential or inpatient treatment centers to serve 270 million adults, six million wow. of whom have gambling problems, is is completely unacceptable. It's completely inadequate. So changing some of these systems does take a while, but we are on the cusp of that revolution because the casualties are rising. The, the most severe of them are going to need places to go, and our current system is completely inadequate to handle this rising wave of gambling addiction. And before I let you go, I know there's a, a huge conference up in uh, Boston uh, next week. Unfortunately, I won't be able to attend it physically, but when you guys have conferences like that, uh, what's the ultimate goal uh, for a conference like the one you're having? Because I'm sure that one of your fears is, hey, there's a little sense of preaching to the choir at, at conferences like that. <laughs> so I just I yeah. wonder what is the goal of a of a multi-day conference uh, for you guys? We've got 625 people coming. It's the biggest event in our 36-year history. Uh, you and Dan were both presenting. I'm sorry you can't make it, but you'll be there in spirit. The two goals. One is to raise public awareness. So we're going to get a lot of earned media in Boston and around the country, frankly, uh, about, hey, this gambling addiction thing, this is real. It's preventable and treatable. And then the second thing is to have hard conversations amongst everyone in the field about trying to find better solutions. So preventionists are going to be talking to counselors about what they can do better. Recovering folks are going to be talking to the industry. Industry is going to be talking to legislators. Regulators are going to be learning from it. We bring together as many stakeholders as we can. And, and we don't say, oh, we've had problems in the past. We say, look towards the future. How do we make sure that every American middle school kid gets a gambling addiction prevention class? So it's you know, kind of like a, a think tank amongst the leaders in this particular field, yeah? There's a lot of professional education, but there's a lot more strategizing yeah. and coming together and then moving forward. Well, count on me to be a part moving forward, and I, I wish I could be there this week because uh, I do appreciate what you guys do. And having talked to you in the past and been a part of last year's event virtually yep. in uh, D.C., uh, I do appreciate you know the dedication that you've uh, made on a personal level and that your group makes every day of the week to try to make the world a better place for people like me and beyond that to try to make it easier for people like me and Dan to get the help that we so badly need. So keep doing what you're doing. And uh, as Dan will tell you, anything we can ever do on your behalf, you'll count us in as a friends and teammates in that regard. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dan and Craig. I truly, truly, truly appreciate it. And likewise, right back at you. We're all in this together. We all have our strengths. We all have our, our opportunities. You know, we all have our, our, our blind spots. But together, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to conquer this thing. I appreciate it. That's Keith White, Executive Director of the mm -hmm. National Council on Problem Gambling, Dan Trelauer of Epic Risk Management, and we appreciate you listening to Hello, My Name is Craig. Coming up at 10 o'clock, or just a few seconds here, Mark Malusis, and then Evan and I are back together Monday at 2 o'clock right here on The Fan.